Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Sanford University. Now your host, Doug Sweeney. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. I'm your host, Doug Sweeney, and I'm joined today by my friend, uh, Dr. Gerald Bray, Beeson's Research Professor of Divinity. Dr. Bray has been a staple here at Beeson Divinity School for many years. He teaches in the area of historical theology. Uh, for a long time, he served as our Anglican Chair of Divinity, uh, and he continues to teach very profitably for us. He also continues to serve as a prolific author, and he's recently released yet another new book entitled A Companion to the Book of Common Prayer, which we want to introduce you to today. So, Dr. Bray, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. Well, we all know this isn't the first time you have been on the Beeson podcast. Um, but having said that, I don't want to presume that everybody listening now knows about you already. So why don't we begin by introducing you to them? Tell us just a little bit about uh, how you became a Christian, how you became involved in ministry, and what got you all the way to Beeson Divinity School. Yeah, well, thank you very much. Uh, well, I was born and brought up in a church-going family, um, which uh, was a great blessing uh, for me because uh, I, I went to Sunday school from a very early age, and uh, unlike a lot of people, I took to it. Um, I, I really liked it, and the particular Sunday school that I went to was very strict, um, not the, the sort of kindergarten stuff that you get nowadays. Um, we uh, had to memorize large chunks of the Bible. Um, Good for I, you. Yes, I had to memorize the whole of Romans, Ephesians, and other New Testament books, one chapter at a time. Nice. And uh, we were catechized, and uh, you know, it was a very serious business. And I'm talking about when I was like seven, eight, nine years old. I mean, not, you know, um, even a teenager. Uh, and so I had a very good foundation in that way. Um, but like a lot of people, I suppose, who are brought up in the church, uh, it's very difficult to know how much of it is something that you take for granted because that's the way you've been brought up um, and how much of it is really personal to you. Mm. And... Um, I mean, I had all the background and so on, but it was when I was about 14 or so that um, I remember hearing somebody talk about uh, being born again as a Christian, and I wasn't terribly sure what that meant um, in particular. But uh, afterwards, I was thinking about it, and I went home and I read my Bible, and I found in Matthew's Gospel where... Um, Jesus was talking about to the Pharisees about um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Mm. And uh, it was actually the Sadducees, I said, rather than the Pharisees, because, because the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. Mm. And so, uh, and Jesus said, well, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he is the God of, uh, not the God of the dead, but of the living. And although this was completely out of context, and it's not what the Bible verse means, um, it struck me in a way that suddenly I, I woke up and thought, I'm dead. I'm one of the dead. Mm. And I, 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 you know, it just, I don't know why it hit me that way, but it did. And, and I got on my knees and, and I just asked the Lord to come into my life and, and you know, make it real for me. Mm -hmm. and, and that's how that happened. And of course, I had all the background, uh, so I knew what it, you know, it was all about. Um, but yes, and 
Um, the thing that I discovered when that happened, of course, my life changed uh, in ways that I didn't really realize at the time because, I mean, I was only a teenager and, of course, you just go on living, you know, and you don't really think about those things very much. But other people noticed. Mm. And um, I suddenly discovered hostility uh, from people, particularly within my own family. Mm. People, well, you see, there are people who are quite happy that I should go to church as a child. But church was something you grew out of, mm. you know, as you got older, that mm. that was all right for a time, but you move on. And I didn't. And so this this wasn't regarded very highly. And um, then when I chose my sort of higher educational uh, aims and so on, um, other people were trying to make turn me into a lawyer or something like this, you see, someone who would make a lot of money. And and I wasn't going that way, mm. and that was a, a, a difficulty yeah. uh, that I had to confront. Not anything that uh, I invited. I mean, I you know I, I didn't wasn't deliberately obnoxious or anything like that. It was just that this is what happened. It came to me as it were that sort of opposition, and um, and I had to struggle against it. But in my early years as a Christian. My fellowship and, and support came mainly from um, parachurch organizations, so, you know, Christian fellowship at school, high school, and then in university. Uh, and again, uh, I, I was very well placed because I happened to, to find myself um, among a group of people who uh, were very uh, good Christian people and, and dedicated and um, I'm still in touch with with many of them, and some of them um, have gone on to great things. And uh, you know, it's quite astonishing when your teenage uh, companions suddenly become famous. Yeah. And um, <laughs> did you go to university intending to do uh, ministry vocationally, or not, you weren't sure? No, well, I wasn't sure because I went to university and I uh, I read classics, the Latin and Greek which, of course, is a great foundation for that. Mm -hmm. And no, I, I, I wasn't particularly thinking of ministry. In fact, I didn't really know what, what I was going to be doing. Um, but it was after I graduated uh, from university that I, I then went to do doctoral studies in Paris. And it was when I was in, in Paris that I actually joined a church for, as an adult mm -hmm. for the first time. And um, and it was there that I you know I, I, I got a, a formation in church life as opposed mm. to Sunday school or um, in an adult church life. Yeah. Which church did you join? I person? joined I, I joined the English Church in Paris, okay. the, the the Anglican Church there. Excellent ministry, um, and uh, and from there I went to Cambridge uh, to study theology. It was more directed then. But I still wasn't terribly sure about ministry, um, you know, or, or what I would end up doing. Um, but it was in the summer jobs that I had, and uh, so on, and mixing with uh, ordinary people, not academic type people or church people particularly. That every once in a while, someone would come up to me and say, "Oh, you're studying for the ministry, aren't you?" Mm. 
Mm. And I would say, well, no, not really. And uh, they said, but you, you're that type. And I thought, oh, what type is that? You know, and you <laughs> kind of. But then gradually, I realized that this was God's sort of way of of indicating to me that oh, there was something there that I needed to consider. And uh, gradually, it sort of uh, dawned on me, and I and I did con- uh, consider it. And I applied for ordination training, and um, and what and was ordained in 1978. Mm. And then I went to serve in a parish in London uh, for two years in the docks of London, a completely different environment from mm. where I, what I'd ever done before. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was when I was there that. Um, I was invited to go and teach at a college. I mean, I didn't ask for the invitation. In fact, I can honestly say I, all the jobs I've ever applied for, I never got. And all the jobs I've had have come to me. Is that right? Yes, <laughs> right through my life. And, uh, uh, and this was one, you see. And I, I went um, to give a few lectures at the college. I don't know quite how they found out about me, but they did anyway. So I, I, I went and the students got a petition up to have me come on the faculty. Hmm. Yeah, so uh, I got invited to, to... It worked. Yes, it worked. <laughs> I know people, students say that the faculty never listened to them, but this was one case where that happened. Yeah. And I, I, I really liked it afterwards because every time anyone complained about anything, I would just simply say, well, you know, I didn't apply for this job. <laughs> you, you gave it to me whether I wanted it or not. And, um, and so that was good. So I taught in London for 12 years. Um, and then I, I was offered a, a research job in Oxford. Uh, but it was contingent on money, mm. and you know when any well you know uh, as well as I do when things are contingent on money, anything can happen. Right. Um, and uh, so this was sort of hanging in the air for a bit, um, but I had some some time on my hands, uh, I suppose you'd have to say. And um, one day I got um, uh, a fax came from Beeson Divinity School, of which I had never heard, hmm. um, asking me to to come to Beeson for a semester to teach. So I thought, well, I can do that. I, you know, I, I, this job is sort of up in the air and it wasn't clear what was going to happen. Um, so um, I, I accepted. And I came. It was Did you know anybody at Beeson at that time in I, your life? Not a soul. And I had, in fact, been in Alabama before, but that was driving from Jacksonville, Florida, to New Orleans. Hmm. So I'd gone through Mobile, and that was as much of Alabama as I'd ever seen. Okay. Um, so I had seen it before. And I'd, in 1990, I had been um, uh, a scholar at the General Theological Seminary in Mm -hmm. New York. So I did, in fact, have experience of living and working in an American seminary. Um, And I was actually interim pastor of the oldest church in New York that's Mm. still functioning, uh, which is the French congregation, um, Huguenot congregation, which has been there since 1628. 
So I um, I did that. You did um, that while you were teaching in New York? While I was teaching in New York, yes. And it was very strange how these things work out because um, in order to pay me, I had to get a social security card. So they gave me one of those. So I had that. And I had to open a bank account. That was another thing. You know, various things like this. Mm -hmm that I thought, well, I don't know what I'm going to do after I go back home, you know, what, what, what's going to happen here. But, you know, you get these things, you keep them in your pocket, and that's that. And then when I came to, to Beeson, of course, I had all this, you know, because they said, well, do you have a work permit? Do you have anything? I, I said, well, I've got all this, you know, documents and that. So they were quite happy about that. But I had no intention of staying. Um, and uh, it was after three weeks that the dean offered me a job. Mm. And I wasn't expecting it at all. And um, I turned him down initially because I said, well, I've got this other job that's sort of hanging. And, I, you know, I can't really just ignore that. Mm -hmm. But so we kind of left it hanging for a while. But um, then by a series of, of accidents, really, I suppose you'd have to say, but... It's sort of, you know, God-governed accidents. Um, the job in Oxford fell apart. Mm. The money wasn't there, basically. Okay. Um, and uh, it, it, it's a long story, but anyhow, I, I realized that this wasn't going to work. So I wrote to the people, and also they said, well, you know, we'll, we'll try to find the funding, blah, 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 come and we'll see what happens. And I said, well, actually, no, I'm going to say pull out of that um, for now. But um, I, I said, because I, you know, it just, just didn't seem to be working properly. Oh. So then I went back to the dean at Beeson and said, well, I'm free now. You mm. know, I can come. So I did. And the first year at Beeson, I hated every minute of it. Mm. Um, not because of Beeson. I mean, Beeson was fine. But I, I, I was out of my comfort zone you know I was in a strange place I didn't know anybody and mm -hmm. um, I didn't have anything to do and uh, you know s settling in a new place when you're you're not young anymore sure. what it, year was this this was 1993 93 yes I came on the 1st of February so it'll be uh, it's just now 31 years um, since I arrived mm. and um, my first semester at Beeson was the it was the uh, year of the big snowstorm. We had fourteen inches of snow mm. one night at spring break, and I was a, well. Everybody w was a prisoner on campus for an entire week. Wow. We couldn't get off. Yes, so I thought, well, I've seen Birmingham at its worst, uh, which is true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know. And well, and you saw Beeson at a very early stage very in its early development. Stage. We weren't in the present building. Yeah. Um, and uh, no, it was very early. It was a very small school. And um, there was a, a, a real pioneer spirit about it. Yeah. And I look back on those days, and it, it's very difficult because... From one point of view, you know, you say, well, the school has grown and it's it's become, you know, a much more solid thing than it was in those days, which is true. And, of course, I'm very grateful to the Lord for that. And, and you know, I, I think it's wonderful what's happened. Um, but it was also fun. It was also fun. Being here in the early years and being one of the pioneers. Right. And also, uh, we... we 
we were much more closely connected to each other because it was sink or swim. Yeah. You know, I mean, you, there was nothing to rely on. There was no reputation and so on. Yeah. Who were the faculty then? Uh, well, we had Ken Matthews, who's just retired, Frank Thielman, who's still here, Timothy George, of course, who is around, um, and then Richard Wells, who has gone away, and um, Fisher, Fisher Humphreys was teaching. Already in 93, he yes, was here. Yes, he was okay. here. Uh, teaching theology, and I think that was it, really. I mean, okay. the, the core. Yeah. And um, you know, but we we uh, well, we we grew clubbed together, and we were very close in many ways. Yeah. And we were on the opposite side of campus then. And I have to say, we were in a building which never flooded. Um, you know, <laughs> so there were advantages, That's right? Yes. <laughs> and um, so that was that. And I watched when the present building was being built. Mm. And I was, the, for better or for worse, the chair of the committee, which chose what we call the Sweet 16, the people who were in the dome. All right. And so I, I, I got to know quite a lot about um, Beeson and, you know, the, the way people think and so on mm-hmm. um, when, we, when we did that. Were they calling you the Anglican chair already yes, at that time? Yes, I came as the Anglican professor okay. of divinity. That was because Mr. Beeson had set that up. Mm-hmm. And so it was deliberate. But of course, there'd never been such a th- person before. And I was suspect from two angles. Uh, the university, which was at that time still much more Baptist than it is now, mm. much more closely connected with the Alabama State Baptist Convention. And they wondered, what's this peculiar person coming here? Because it was because of Mr. Beeson, not any other reason. And the Episcopal Church, which thought, who is this parish being parachuted in, you know, Mm. from goodness knows where, because I didn't know any of them either. Um, So I, I had to spend the first couple of years just reassuring people that, you know, I, I, I wasn't as bad as they thought. Yeah. And um, uh, so after you got settled in mm-hmm. mid 90s, late mm-hmm. 90s, mm-hmm. you know, you've always been somebody who's been pretty well known in academic circles. Mm-hmm. You publish a lot. This, yes. You could have gone somewhere else. Well, I was invited. I, I, yes, I was I was pursued by by various institutions and um I had to decide what to do, and uh, it, it, that was a, a kind of crisis point in my own life because I thought, well, you know, what what am I actually doing? Yeah. And I realized that uh, in my own self that my career, as such as it was, was a vocation, not a job. Mm. And one particular institution, I said, well, I, you know, I've only been at Beeson a couple of years, and I, I, I don't feel I can leave them so so soon. And they said, oh, well, we'll buy you, we'll buy you out, you know, we'll, if there's something like this. Yeah. And I thought, well, I'm not a commodity, you know, I don't, I don't want to be bought out, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I said, no, that's, that's not right. I mean, if I'm committed to this place, it's, a vo- it's my vocation not my yeah. job. as, as a, It is a job in one sense, of course, but it's more than that. Yeah. And um, I, I appreciated very much what Beeson wanted to be. Yeah. Um, you know, an interdenominational evangelical 
school of theology uh, with a strong emphasis on pastoral uh, training men and women for pastoral ministry also for other things I mean we, we've trained people for academic but it's a very sort of broad uh, thing but also a relatively small school mm -hmm. as schools go and you could get to know everybody and uh, and so on and um, and that suited me just fine you know yeah. that's what that's what I liked and um, I managed to to develop good relations with faculty but also with students as they came and went and I still maintain uh, connections as far as I can with alumni oh sure and um, I know that well yes and uh, so in it, addition to I mean I I know. I mean, you, you stuck around mostly because you felt like God wanted you here. Yes, that's right. You had a sense right. of calling to this mm -hmm. place. Mm -hmm. From a, just a more mundane human point of view, what were some of the features about Beeson, even in the early years when it was pretty small and there was more you know, potential that hadn't yet been actualized yet? There was a vision and a hope. We were trying to become something but hadn't quite done it yet. What What kept you around? Well, the sense that uh, it, it, I, one of the things that I was called to do was to further that vision. Um, you know, you do get people who will go somewhere and it's not what they, what they were expecting. Mm -hmm. And so they turn around and walk away. Mm -hmm. And I think to myself, well, no, that's not the way you should do it. You see that, I mean, if it's not what you were expecting, well, it depends on the circumstances, of course, but... In, in Beeson's case, we were still in the formative stages, formative years. And I said, but it, it has the potential to become, you know, what I, I wanted it to be and what everybody wanted it to be. I mean, it wasn't just my eccentric idea. Whereas I said, if I walk away and say, well, you know, it's not what I, what I expected. I expected something far more developed. People would have looked and said, well... You know what do you what do you expect? You can't. You were brought here in order to to help it develop, and yes. now you're running away from you know what you were called to do. Mm -hmm. And 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 I thought, well, no, that's not right. I, I I need to stay here and and commit to to working out this vision. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, and and I I, I felt it, it would be wrong to leave mm -hmm. at that stage. I mean, it's the same, of course, with anything. You know, and. Uh, People get married and get tired of it after two or three years and they're not prepared to work at it. Uh, but you have to <laughs> because it's a, it's a commitment. It's not, yeah. you know, it's something you have to do. And I felt like that with, with Beeson that, um, you know, if I'm just going to complain about it's not giving me what I want um, or, or expect or something and I'm not prepared to to, you know, make my contribution mm -hmm. then then I would be in the wrong and and I've always felt that um, and ever since you know I mean we've been through our ups and downs we've made our mistakes I've made mistakes and um, you have to turn around and say well yes you know we tried that and it, it didn't work and we tried something else and it didn't work okay but that's not the end of life you know you have to move on and I look back now after more than 30 years and of course, what stands out and what uh, you know you see is um, how much has gone well and 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 how much um, 
God has blessed us in different ways. I mean, mm -hmm. when you're actually in it on a day-to-day -day basis, of course, it's very hard to judge this because you can't see the future. You don't know what's going to happen. But when you look back, and I look at some of the, the, the students I've known over the years and what they're doing now, um, you know, many have gone on to, to very impressive uh, careers, some of them quite prominent uh, in academic or church life, others perhaps less prominent, but still very uh, satisfying and, oh, yeah. and successful. And yeah. um, others have, have gone into other walks of life, you know, in different uh, ways. Um, and, uh, and, but we reconnect. I mean, just very recently, we, you know, we had an alumnus come and preach in chapel. Um, and uh, a student whom I knew very well, of course, when he was a student, and I've kept up with over the years off and on. And uh, we got together sort of secretly afterwards because it wasn't in the program that we were supposed to meet. But we, but he came and found me, and mm -hmm. we had a wonderful afternoon together. You know, uh, we just picked up where we left off last time, and and there's a. a there's a friendship, and but there's a relationship which somehow goes deeper than that because it's, you know, in the Lord and, and in the ministry and in the vocation that we share. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and then I realize, well, this is, this is what's been happening. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is, this is the way it is. And so um, I look back and I feel now I, I've been here a long time and um, the last couple of years um, there there have been a lot, a lot of changes changes which were bound to happen I mean everything happens you know it, it was going to happen anyway and I'm glad to have, to have been here to see it mm. not that you know uh, the, you don't have some regrets of course but you know we're all getting on and 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 things move on and I, I say to people now I said you know I said, I'm in a very difficult time of life. And they said, what do you mean? And I said, well, I'm too old to have a regular job, but not old enough to be president. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, what do you do? <laughs> sort of in a kind of no man's land, you know. Um, but uh, I, I look through that and I think, what should I be doing? What should my, my main contribution be? And I think it's very much a ministry of encouragement mm. to people because I'm I'm talking to people who are a third of my age. Yeah, I could be their grandparents, and in a way, I suppose I am. I sort of take you know that's the way they would see me mm -hmm. uh, in some ways. And but I can tell them you know because well you know when when you're young and something goes wrong in your life, it's a major tragedy. Uh, because you can't see where 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 things are headed if your engagement breaks up or if your job falls apart or something like that you know people can feel feel it very very badly and i get alongside people like that and I said look it's not the end of the world um you know god hasn't brought you this far in order to abandon you now and seminary life is the time when things will be sorted out in your life and that's the preparation. That's the real preparation for ministry. Yes. Um,
because you may have brought baggage with you from wherever. I said, I don't know what it is, and I'm not trying to poke my nose into your affairs, but there may be issues that you have to sort out in your life, and this is the time to do it mm -hmm. so that you can go out prepared. And, you know, if God is, is closing one particular door or pointing you in a direction that you might not have previously considered, um, then you know this this is this is the place for that right you know, where that should happen and um and so i i think that's a very very valuable ministry and a very important thing oh and to encourage people and say well you know it, it could be worse but also <laughs> it could be worse but also it's going to be better i mean you know that, that you'll come through this and you'll come through this stronger than you are and um, I spend a lot of time listening to students preach mm -hmm. um, and and try to help, you know, to say how I feel about it and what, so on. And, yeah, um, and it means the world to a young preacher absolutely. when somebody at your stage of life is an encouragement. Well, that's what I think. And, and, and I said, if I have to say something, say, critical in some way, it's better that it come from me than it come from a board of deacons or somebody yeah. in the church who, who are going to fire you, you yeah. know. <laughs> I mean, well, strange things happen, you see. For instance, some people have the idea that they have to tell jokes mm. in the pulpit to get the crowd, yeah. you know, worked up. And all right, I mean, you can do that. I mean, I have a sense of humor, so I do that sometimes. But there's certain things you don't joke about. Right. And one of them is hell. Mm. And I remember hearing a sermon somebody preached on hell, and they made a joke of it. Yeah. And I said, sorry, dear, you can't do that. You know, there are some subjects that are just too serious. And, yeah. I mean, by all means, you use a sense of humor when it's appropriate. But in this case, it's not. And, you know, you have to... This is the place where you can say that to people, and it's not the end of the world, right. you know. Yeah. Um so things like that. Yeah. Um, oh, Gerald, your ministry here has just been so. immense. And I, I know very few people whose so-called retirement years have been as fruitful uh, for the Lord, for the church, for the kingdom uh, as yours have been. I mean, yeah. your ongoing interpersonal ministry to students, which we've just talked about, your ongoing teaching ministry, mm -hmm. your ongoing writing ministry. It's been a, a tremendous blessing to us at Beeson, but mm -hmm. to lots of other folks as well. Well, yes, you see, I took early retirement not because I was fed up with teaching, but because I was fed up sitting on committees. Mm. And the, There are many the, faculty members who relate to this right here. <laughs> that's right. Well, the, the reality of academic life now is that it's, it's become much more bureaucratized than it used to be. And the higher up you arise, you know, on the ladder, the more committees you end up sitting on, the more you mm. do admin, yeah. rather than actually teaching in yeah. a classroom. Work with the students. Well, that's yeah. right. And so I thought, well, I, I don't really see myself doing this, you know. And so I, I, I pulled back from that. Um, and I mean, I'm still interested, of course, in what goes on in, in, in many ways. And I'm not trying to say that I won't do you know, administrative work, if I'm asked to and I have to, that's fine. But uh, it's given me time to write. It's given me time to, you know, to minister in different ways pastorally. And I wouldn't have been anything like as productive as I have been mm. if I haven't done that. Right. And 
Um, and so I said, well, I've only got so much time on earth and the time is running out and, you know, redeem the time, said the scriptures. You yes. Know, count each day as if it's your last and, and make sure that you are using it in the right way. Yeah. And that, that's what I've tried to do. Mm, thank you for doing it. Uh, one of the things we mentioned at the beginning of our conversation is that you continue to be a productive scholar and a writer. And uh, even just since I've been here doing these podcast episodes, we've talked a few times about new books that you've published. The latest is a companion to the Book of Common Prayer. I bet most of our listeners have at least heard of the Common Prayer, Book of Common Prayer before. Mm -hmm. Just for people who aren't Anglican, can you tell us a little bit about, so what is the Book of Common Prayer? Tell us a little bit about its history, and then we'll see what you're doing in this particular yeah. book here. Well, the Book of Common Prayer, of course, was introduced in, in England in the uh, mid-16th century. And it came about because the, the Reformation in England was different from the Reformation in other countries. Um, in Germany with Martin Luther, uh, in France or the French-speaking world with, with John Calvin and people like this, it was more of a kind of, I wouldn't say grassroots, because you wouldn't say Luther was the grassroots, really. But, um, you know, it, it, it came from within the church itself and, and, and spread that way and through preaching and teaching ministry and, and so on. Mm -hmm. um, and the people who, who were were one to it, were one by, by the preaching and teaching. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's why people became Lutheran or became Calvinist or whatever it is they became. Whereas in England, it wasn't. I mean, in, in England, the Reformation came about because the king wanted his marriage annulled uh, so that, you know, he could marry somebody else and have a, uh, have a son, have an heir to the throne. And so the complications resulting from that... Um, led him to break with the papacy, which wasn't prepared to, to annul his marriage in the way that he wanted it annulled. And England woke up the next day as, as a so-called Protestant country with no Protestants in it, mm. or, or very few. And so the, right from the beginning, um, the Church of England uh, you know, basically had, had to convert its own people. And it still does. I mean, that's, that's, that's what it is. And so you have to understand, um, you know, they produced uh, books of sermons to be preached because the priests in the church had no idea. They could barely read, never mind preach. Um, you know, and, and so they were given that to preach. The catechisms were devised. And, of course, where were you going to get these things? Well, mainly from, from Luther or from Calvin. I mean, they, they, they imported a great deal. Sure. And... And the prayer book was was the same. I mean, you know, most of it you can find has some kind of antecedent in in uh, pro other Protestant countries, um, but it, 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 it was a teaching medium. It was meant to, to teach people how to pray. And this may seem odd to us, but you read the New Testament, and you know, when what did the disciples say to Jesus? They said, "Lord, teach us how to pray." You know, and it was when they said that that he gave them the Lord's Prayer, and um, and so this is something that has to be taught, and this mm -hmm. is what the prayer book tra tries to do. Now, over the years, of course, various things have happened. I mean, some people have have 
said, well, it's rote, you know, repetition, uh, vain mm. repetition, people just saying things they don't mean, and mm. uh, it goes in one ear and out the other. Uh, so you get that reaction, um, you know, rather than sponta- something spontaneous from the heart. Um, you get other people who uh, are, are wedded to it because it's 16th century English. Um, uh, you get other people who, who like it because to them it seems as if the Reformation never actually happened, mm. which is a complete misunderstanding of what it was meant to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it goes. You see, I mean, there's all kinds of arguments about it one way or another. Um, and in the 19th century, this, this became divisive within the church itself. And people wrote um, commentaries on the Book of Common Prayer. There's even a, dic- a dictionary, a prayer book dictionary, which was produced. And they represented different schools of thought. But from the, the evangelical standpoint, from the Reformed standpoint, the last book that did this, that actually guided people through the prayer book um, uh, and, and pointed out what it was all about, um, was written in 1912. A second edition came out a year later in 1913 mm. because it sold very well. Uh, and it was reprinted until 1963. Um, it's gone out of print now. Um, but that's all there was, yeah. you see. And well, it's about time we have another. Well, because there's been such a lot of liturgical revision and so on in the 20th century and recent times, ecumenical movement, um, a lot of the controversies that were raging a hundred plus years ago have disappeared or mm-hmm. they've changed their character. Yeah. Um, and uh, we're much more open to other things now. I mean, I'll give you one example um, where the prayer, prayer book is, is very much a child of its time. Um, the baptismal uh, liturgies, you see, there, there were... Two, there was one for the public baptism of infants and one for the private baptism of infants. Well, the, the people who devised the prayer book, uh, they didn't believe in the private baptism of infants, but this was a compromise because a lot of people weren't prepared to go into the church and have their children baptized. So, um, you know, they had to allow for that, even though they weren't terribly happy about it. And of course, at a day and age when infant mortality rates were extremely high, mm-hmm. you couldn't necessarily wait even to Sunday. The child might not survive. Yeah. So, you know, you could see the, the logic behind it. But there was no right of baptism for adults. And it was only in 1662, 110, 12 years after the, the initial prayer book came out, that they put one in. Um, saying that we we have to do this partly because of overseas expansion. Mm. And in the colonies, you know, natives, adults are becoming Christian and and they have to be baptized. And partly also because sectarian groups like Baptists and what have you were were coming on the scene and they were not baptizing infants. Uh, And so, you know, a a right for the uh, baptism of adults was needed. Is there a, a simple way to characterize the, the changes in the prayer book over the centuries? I, I think there are many lay people who know enough about the prayer book and its history to know 
there have been changes. Yes. And our ministers talk about various additions. Yes. And there's some controversy sometimes lying under the surface there. But they don't know much about these changes and yeah. how interested they should be in them. Right. What do they need to know about that? Well, they need to know uh, why the changes were made. Um, I mean, I've just given you a case in point, you mm -hmm. see, and um, uh, and how they how they should relate to this. Because today, of course, if you take the baptism question, everybody would agree, whatever denomination you are, that the baptism of adults is primary and the baptism of children is read off that as an mm -hmm. extension. Um, which in the 16th, 17th century they didn't believe or they, they didn't realize. So that's one thing. The changes, uh, yes, I mean, in the companion that I've uh, uh, written, I've detailed all the changes mm. as they've occurred. And usually, what well, depends on what the changes are, but in, if, for example, a prayer or, or some particular thing has been altered partially, um, I will have the, the old wording uh, in one font and the new wording uh, in a different font nice. so that you can see immediately how, mm -hmm. it, was, how it was altered um, and, uh, and follow on like that and then an explanation as to what it actually meant and why. Um, and so it's, this is why it's called a companion to the Book of Common Prayer because you can take the, the one that you've got in front of you now and go to this and see what the original was. That's great. And how it's moved on since then. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yes, I mean, you know, it, it, it's it's a very uh, educative thing um, from that point of view. And it's mainly intended for students and pastors and interested lay people, um, you know, who, who, who want to... Uh, or who need to, if they're ministering, know what the background is. Yeah. Because you get a lot of people that, in total ignorance, will say something or other, um, and they don't know. Right. You know, they just don't right. know. Right. Even clergy. Oh, oh, oh yeah. especially. <laughs> I, I mean, that's that's that that's the embarrassing thing. You see, and I don't blame them because I mean, you know, you, you're sitting in a class in in seminary. What are the chances that? your lecturer is going to tell you those things, well, 50-50. Mm -hmm. What are the chances that you're going to remember it? Probably zero. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> you know, yeah. and so it's useful to have that. It sure is. So what else are you doing for everybody in that volume? What, what, what else is in it? Uh, well, uh, it, it goes through all the services, and it shows the pattern of how, you know, it's laid out, um, how it's meant to... to Really, it's, it, it's meant to take a pattern of worship which originated in the medieval monasteries and adapt them for everyday use by ordinary people who were not monks. Hmm. So you have your daily prayer, morning and evening. Uh, you, you, know, you, you have a, a regular scriptural reading. Um, because it was only in the Reformation, people don't realize this, that you know, regular Bible reading, starting with Genesis and ending up in Re Revelation, was actually developed. And people were expected to read the Bible right the way through. Um, it was only then that the Psalter came into use in the way that we're used to now. I mean, the Psalms, of course, were always there. And, but what they used to do was 
take out odd verses here and there, you know, and, and, and use them in the prayers and that. Um, but the idea of reciting a complete psalm mm. and, and going through them on a regular basis and, and making that, well, it was the, the hymnal of the church, really. Yeah. And, and doing this was, was, was a novelty mm. uh, at the time of the Reformation. So, um, uh, you, you know, it's pointing this out and saying, well, it may be true that, you know, we have new translations of the Bible. We have we've moved on in some ways, but but the principle, the pattern, the the intention of the original is still there. It is to grow in Christ, to be grounded in the Word of God, and and, and the prayer book is really the Bible turned into worship. Mm. You know and. Um, connected like this and trying to get people to see this and especially at a time when um, I, in, a, in church life uh, we're facing a, a generation which is increasingly uneducated in these things yes they may even the people who go to church you know they they, they haven't been brought up with that deep knowledge of the bible um, and this is part of our culture uh, I'm, not, I'm not blaming anybody. This is just what's happened, mm -hmm. and um, and we need to go back to this, mm -hmm. cultivating the memory. Um, you know, making people see that depth matters, yeah. and that it's what you absorb in your heart that stays there mm -hmm. and uh, and comes back to refresh you as time goes on. Do you advocate? I've known a bunch of people over the years who will use the prayer book even for personal devotions. Most people use it in church for worship. Yes. Some people use it in their homes for personal devotions. Yes. What do you think about that? Is that a practice you commend? Yes, I do commend that. Um, everyone should have practical, you know, personal devotions of whatever kind, and it will be different for different people. I, I, I don't lay down the law. Um, in our own church, when you are ordained, you undertake to... Uh, to use the prayer book as on a daily basis, mm. which is what I do. Um, and uh, over the years of the 40 plus years that I've been ordained, um, it's become part of me, uh, you know, in, 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 in that respect. And it, it is a, um, a protection, if you like, um, because... When things are going well in your in your life as a Christian, you know it doesn't really matter because you're sort of flying high and everything's all all fine. But it's in the down times, mm -hmm. you know, when you're discouraged, when <clears throat> when you're doubting, when you've got problems, you need something to keep you going. You need you need a foundation, and it's in those times that something like this that the the investment pays off, shall we say? Yeah. You know, I. It's like eating. I mean, I can't say that every meal I've had uh, has, has been a marvelous experience. <laughs> but on the other hand, that hasn't stopped me eating. <laughs> and and if, it, if it is a good meal, well, I, I'm grateful, you know. And, and you know what I mean. It yes. goes like that. And I've got to the point now where if I miss my daily devotion from the prayer book for whatever reason... You know, I'm flying overnight or something like that. You know, things get out of uh, out of kilter. I feel it as if I'd missed a meal. Mm -hmm. 
uh, you know, a, a physical meal. Sure. And and that's a sign from the Lord, I think, that of how important this is mm. uh, to come back to Him. And I mean, I'm not a fundamentalist um, in prayer book terms. I don't, you know, um, uh, idolize it um, and so on. But I, I use it as a tool, and uh, you know. Really, for my own, I, I, I pray the prayer book, and then I go into my own private devotions from there. It's a kind of uh, baseline, from, you know, from on which to build a foundation. Um, and I think that's what you have to do and have to understand it. And of course, the great thing about it is it keeps you balanced, because some people, you know, they they emphasize one thing, um, Thanksgiving or or. Uh, you know the intercession or whatever, and I mean that's all fine, but they're not balancing it off with other other things. Whereas if you follow the the prayer book, you are forced to to be balanced, oh. and that's very important. Mm. Some great advice, Dr. Bray. We're about out of time. You know, we always like to end our podcast interviews by asking our guests what God is doing in their lives these days, what God is teaching them these days because we want to end on a note that is just forthrightly edifying for the people who are listening. So we ask you, what's God working on in your life these days? What's God doing or teaching you? Well, there are many, many things. I think one thing that he's doing is teaching me to be patient, hmm. more patient. I'm by nature a very impatient person. And I, I like to do things and get them done, yes. you know, and, and and so on. That's just me. Um, and I, I, I'm learning, you know, to to hold back and say, well, you know, God's timing is always right. And he will do what he's going to do when it's right to be done. Not when I want it done, <laughs> but when he wants it done. And... Really just to surrender this, to surrender my own um, thoughts and wishes and, and so on, of which I've got plenty, um, you know, and, and ask him to sort of reconstruct my, my thinking um, so that I'm, I'm on his wavelength rather than keep trying to force him to be on mine, mm. um, you know, and say, well, Lord, why aren't you doing this, that or the other? I mean, I asked you already, and you haven't done it yet. <laughs> no. You know, yes. uh, to sort of turn around and, 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 and look at it the other way around. Um, and, and I think that's, especially, I think, is growing older um, and realizing that you're running out of time. Um, I think that's a very important lesson to, to learn. Mm. You know, that, um, yes, I'm running out of time, I think, and so I want to hurry it up. You know, I want to see it in my time sort of thing. Yes. But, but that's not the way that God works. You know, you plant a tree and the tree will outlive you. And, um, and you've got to do this. I mean, here we're sowing seeds at Beeson all the time. But when will they mature? You know, I may not live to see it mm. on this earth, but I'll see it from heaven. You know, and uh, and having that faith to say, well, it doesn't depend on me. I mean, I'm a servant, and when I'm called to go home, um, well, that's it. I'm called to go home. I have to do what I'm told, and and then I shall know. 
you know, even as Paul says, even as also I am known. And, you know, now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Mm -hmm. And as long as you stay on the principles, faith, hope and love, and, and just, you know, walk in faith, keep the hope going and demonstrate as much love as you can as you do so, um, then you don't need to worry. Mm. You know, the time will come, you will, I will go and, um, and God's work will continue. Yeah. What a marvelous note on which to end. May the Lord help us all to grow in our aptitude for relying on his time and his grace, his provision, his providence in our lives. You have been listening to Dr. Gerald Bray. He is Research Professor of Divinity here at Beeson Divinity School, where he has served faithfully on the faculty for more than three decades. Uh, Please check out his new book, A Companion to the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, We commend it to you heartily, and we'll feature it when we post this uh, podcast interview on our media uh, channels as well. Thank you, Dr. Bray, for being with us. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. We're praying for you. We ask you to continue to pray for the Lord's work here at Beeson Divinity School. And we say goodbye for now. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from the campus of Samford University. Our theme music is by Advent Birmingham. Our announcer is Mike Pascarello. Our engineer is Rob Willis, and our show host is Doug Sweeney. For more episodes and to subscribe, visit BeesonDivinity.com slash podcast. You can also find the Beeson Podcast on iTunes and Spotify. Thank you.